This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer sale of investment products. And views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got a great show planned for today. We have a guest in the studio with us for the whole hour, John Abruzese, Chief Investment Officer at Evercourt Wealth Management down from New York. John, thank you for coming to Wharton, to our Philadelphia. Welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. We are going to have an interesting conversation on a lot of your work, some of your outlooks uh, across the, the world markets and, and some valuation indicators that you do. I know Professor Siegel follows a lot of uh, similar type of market valuation measures. But Professor, why don't we bring you in just for some market commentary? We didn't have you last week. A uh, lot's been going on in uh, commentary on the Fed, on trade policy. Uh, give us uh, your sort of current, current view of what's going on here. Yeah, I think Trump is uh, the man who is uh, dominating a lot of the uh, economic d- discussion. Uh, you know, first, of course, always on trade. Uh, it does seem to be heating up. I mean, uh, there is that threat on all $500 billion of Chinese goods. Of course, it doesn't become operative until the end of August, September, actually. So there's still a lot of time for negotiation, but, um, you know, it doesn't appear to be much negotiation yet. So um, China canceled some soybean contracts, I heard, uh, with North Dakota, and we've gotten quite a plunge in soybean prices as our main export to China. Um, so uh, that is it. But then uh, really <laughs> um, uh, impact the market yesterday uh, and repeated today criticizing the Fed for uh, raising interest rates. Um, uh, now, let's get a little perspective on that. I mean, it used to be, uh, you know, actually um, uh, quite popular for politicians uh, to criticize the, the Fed. I remember back in the 1960s and 70s, Wright Patman was a Democrat from Texas, uh, and there were quite a few populists, so to speak, from the Texas and Southwest who hated high interest rates and any time the Fed raised interest rates, they would get on their stump and and rile against them um, more more in Congress than the president. Um, uh, in more recent years, presidents have remained mum on that issue. Um, now, of course, uh, as Trump himself said, he actually selected uh, Jay Powell. Uh, so uh, uh, the interesting thing is, if he had kept Janet Yellen, he could, you know. Um, uh, criticize an Obama appointee, but now it's it's his own appointee. Um, so where do we stand? First of all, um, the big decision for the Fed is going to be their September uh, meetings. Let me just get you the date uh, over here. Uh, 
September 26th. So, you know, we're still, um, you know, well over two months away. And it's a question of whether they are going to raise on that date at all. It depends on the data. Uh, as you know, I think the economy is growing too fast uh, for them not to raise in each of the quarterly meetings, September and, and December. Um, but uh, the street is sort of divided on that. Uh, could this provide some pressure? I think actually uh, the person that could be pressured the most is Powell himself. He is uh, the Trump appointee. Um, he was not a lot, you know, he was nowhere near uh, the uh, inevitable choice. So, I mean, uh, he got singled out to become Fed chair. Um, you know, I would say two years ago, no one would have even considered him very much in the running. So uh, he's there because of Trump. Um he also doesn't have the strongest views because of his background on what interest rates should be and is apt to be influenced more by others. I think the others have very strong ideas about whether interest rates should be raised or not. Um, but, of course, being the Fed chairman, he exercises a lot of power. So it is. it would be interesting to see whether uh, he tips on the edge of being uh, more dovish uh, as a result of this. Um, uh, it's way too early to see, and of course it all depends on the data anyways. Uh, we got a very strong uh, jobless claims uh, piece of data yesterday. It went to 49-year low, which means the uh, uh, the labor market is still hot, providing over 200000 a month. We've talked about this issue every time. Uh, you know, what, what we all hope for and what Powell should hope for is that the participation rate goes up to absorb those people, and then he won't have to raise rates. But, you know, it depends on the data uh, going forward on that. And, of course, on the on the trade front, anything can happen. No one really knows this is, on you know, uncharted waters uh, on, on, on uh, you know, how far Trump will push it and what the Chinese will do. Um, uh, I don't know if anyone has any idea there. Um, obviously, the market, 1% to 2% below its all-time high, uh, basically says, hey, this isn't going to be a big deal. There's going to be some middle ground. Uh, it's not going to turn into a trade war. Earnings are still great. The momentum is still up. Uh, and uh, the bull market is still on. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, in the next few months, we'll, we'll see how some of these things work out. We also have a week from today of the GDP for the second quarter, and uh, it looks to be very strong, although the, the street is looking for the low fours. as um, Advisors I look at says it could be as high as 5.0 or not, which, of course, will give Trump uh, a lot of ability to crow about his economic policy, being more convinced than ever that what he's doing is right, and perhaps becoming more obstinate in his views on trade uh, and uh, the Fed uh, as a result. Um, so uh, next Friday, by the way, also with next Friday, every five years we get a complete rerun of all uh, GDP data because of uh, new corrections that are made, new, new um, data that is in. So uh, we're also going to see revisions going back five years to actually uh, look at things. Are those maybe more historical interest, but they do affect uh, seasonal adjustment, a lot of other factors. They may even affect the growth rate. A lot of economists think that we're going to have slightly faster uh, post-recession uh, 
financial crisis growth as a result of these five-year revisions, maybe about a quarter of a point. Um, but um, the big number will be that second quarter. It's going to be strong. Uh, Trump will crow about it, and um, uh, I think uh, you know that's going to be um, uh, something to watch. Before I one more question before I bring in John to the conversation here, uh, the you know you you also see besides the rates being too high, Trump you know one of the people say well China can't tax ours because we're importing so much more from China you know that they're sort of constrained how much they actually buy from us. So you see you know the Chinese going in these the, potentially weakening their currency, and you see Trump then coming back today uh, or the last few days. Uh, saying, well, these other have this unfair advantage of keeping their currencies too low. Um, do, is there actually anything you think, you know, and that does cause some sell-off in the dollar a little bit, but did you, and, do you think they can, do you worry about the central bank independence slash currency intervention, verbal well, intervention? You say the dollar was too high, and that did cause the sell-off this morning. Now, the dollar has gotten higher I think justifiably strong. We have the strongest economy by far of the developed economies. We have the highest real rates of all the major economies. And, you know, capital is still flowing here and, and, and sending uh, the dollar higher. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese yuan has been going down now for quite a few months. Um, part of it's the threat of the, tr- of the trade war. And, 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 and um, a part of it is, uh, you know, people in China trying to get some of their currency out, putting pressure on that, uh, the Chinese government over the last several years you know, has sold a trillion dollars worth of uh, U.S. government securities trying to actually uh, support the uh, yuan. Um, but it is going down, and maybe it's going down in anticipation of some of these problems to keep them competitive on the export side if we do launch tariffs against uh, their goods coming in uh, to the United States. So I think, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're manipulating the currency. I think there's actual, you know, real capital movements that are causing this, but uh, you know, clearly Trump could, could could start talking about currency manipulation again now that yuan is weakened, and um, you know that could add fuel to the his uh, you know tariff fire. Very good, John. Let me bring you into the conversation. So, John Apuzese, partner, chief investment officer at Evercore Wealth Management. Uh, you do a lot of this type of market outlook, asset allocation, very high-level macro. Been working with clients for over thirty years in, in consulting high net worth clients. Again, welcome. Thanks again for joining us here. Sure. Uh, maybe you could just give us give our our listeners a little bit about Evercore uh, Wealth Management. So it's sort of a, 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 a the parent company, Evercore, give us a little bit of background on how you guys came to be as, as a Evercore Wealth Management in the relation to the bigger Evercore. Right. So uh, Evercore uh, is the parent company. It was founded over 20 years ago by Roger Altman. Um, and so their, their core business is um, M&A advice. Uh, Evercore Wealth Management was created, it'll be almost, almost 10 years ago. Uh, I and a number of uh, my associates uh, worked at U.S. Trust for a very long time. U.S. Trust was acquired by Bank of America. We decided it would be best if we no longer worked there. What timing was this? Uh, so that was in uh, – so Bank of America bought U.S. Trust in 07. So during 08, during that year, we were kind of putting our plans together. So it was interesting timing. Uh, so in the summer of 08, we pretty much decided – uh, that we wanted to team up with Evercore. They were willing to put up the capital, get the firm going. Uh, and then, of course, um, we had Lehman Brothers fail in September, et cetera, and that put our plans off for a little bit. Uh, when everything's said and done, we got the firm up and running at the beginning of 2009, um, and it's uh, 
So interestingly, uh, our investment record starts in February of '09. So we missed the bottom by a month, but close enough. Uh, so it's been uh, it's been a great time, and so we now uh, so we're a subsidiary of Evercore. Um, we're now a RIA managing seven point eight billion dollars, um, three four hundred clients, uh, and four offices around the country. And what was it like at starting this new institution in the hearts of the the financial crisis, getting people to sort of transfer money to a startup and get get investing? Yeah, it was a very interesting time. It was. What was nice about it is you're able to kind of take out a clean sheet of paper and kind of think things through. Obviously, that was a traumatic event um, going through 08, managing portfolios. Um, so it gave us a chance to really sit back and with a clean sheet of paper decide exactly how we wanted to position portfolios. Uh, we decided to hang in there, and we have a bias towards equities. We think they have the highest expected return of any liquid investment. Um, so that tends to be the largest part of our portfolio, and um, we decided to keep it that way. Um, you know, some a modification of the the classic sixty forty portfolio, sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds, heavily modified with with other things. Uh, so it was an interesting time. It, what some may know, not remember is, uh, and what we didn't know when we pulled the cord in November is Madoff uh, hit. Uh, the news hit about Madoff in December of '08, so that was a very tricky time to be starting a firm. Fortunately, we had uh, Evercore behind us. I think without that, it would have been very difficult. So a very interesting time to get started. Um, so it's been great since then. So maybe talk a little bit. You talked about how you guys bias the 60-40 a little bit different. Maybe talk about how you think about equities, and then we can talk about how you think about equities in context to, you know, not necessarily when you started, but just in, in sort of general, how, how you're positioned from the equity side. Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, you know, equities do. Um, we we agree with uh, Professor Siegel that that uh, equities have the highest expected return of any liquid investment. Um, I think for for our clients, you know, we tend to we're, we're managing high net worth individuals exclusively, not really institutions. Uh, so for individuals uh, with capital, uh, classic example where they they're going to spend down some of the portfolio, but they want growth for the long term. You know that the level of risk does send, tend to settle around a portfolio that would have about the risk of a sixty forty portfolio. I think that's where a lot of our clients land. Not all uh, asset allocation in the end is determined by clients' objectives. So we have some clients that might be one hundred percent equity, and some the opposite. But but generally, uh, that level of risk um, tends to work best. We've, of course, it's been modified. Um, so we are at about 50, typical portfolio would be 50% in stocks, 10% in illiquid equity-like investments, be that private equity, private real estate, et cetera, et cetera. Then we'll have about a quarter in bonds, investment-grade bonds. So that's a very safe, relatively low return, but provides for liquidity, um, allows for drawdown in the portfolio during a bad market, allows for the ability <coughs> to take money out. Uh, without having being forced to sell assets uh, during a bad market. And then about 20% 20, uh, 20 of the portfolio in credit-type strategies and alternative strategies. Now, I think one of the reasons I, I reached out to you on the program, we saw you wrote a white paper called uh, A Reality Check for, for Stock Valuations. And so this is where you know, Professor Siegel's done a lot of work on valuations and, and looking at market return expectations from that. Maybe talk through you know what – 
as you were looking at just how to put today's marketplace in context, is market expensive, is it not, how you sort of looked at the world of valuation indicators and, and how you came to the, the, the paper that you guys published. Sure. Uh, so in a bull market like this, uh, obviously, as mentioned, the economy is doing very well, uh, So that, and uh, obviously corporate earnings are extremely strong. So the main issue tends to be valuation. Are you paying too much? Um, since uh, sentiment tends to be strong, obviously we've had this long-running bull market. So the main issue, especially towards last year, as the market really had a very strong year, PEs were expanding and was the market too expensive. When you get PEs up around 20 times versus the average of 15, uh, it brings that into question. So we took a look. I think a lot of commentators, when they look at the market, when the justification for the high valuation is low interest rates, and we decided to modify that. We think it's not so much – it might be considered splitting hairs, but I don't think so. It's not so much interest rates as it is inflation. Obviously, interest rates and inflation are related. But actually, if you go back over the last 60 years – P.E., the P.E. ratio of the market has an 81.81 correlation to the CPI and only a 0.64 correlation to the 10-year Treasury. So empirically, it looks like it's, it's more closely aligned to inflation than necessarily interest rates. And particularly in this period, the 10-year Treasury, we're in this unusual period where the central bank has been manipulating not just short-term interest rates, but the entire yield curve. So it would appear that the 10-year Treasury, yielding 2.8% or so, has been heavily manipulated by the central bank. So that we don't think is necessarily the best way to adjust uh, the valuation of the market. So what, what, what's your opinion, John, now on uh, the valuation? So when you instead use uh, inflation – so basically what we did is we looked back over the last 60 years. Uh, the average P.E. was 15 times, which which works to a – it's really the earnings yield. To do it correctly, to adjust the valuation for the CPI, you really need to flip. You know, it's so, it's so interesting. Wall Street has this convention about P.E. ratios, and they feel so strongly about it. They get so locked into it. They go through somersaults to compare the P.E. ratio to other things. Like, for instance, for this for the uh, inflation, there's this rule of 20. <laughs> like, P.E. plus inflation should equal 20. It's just made up. It kind of works, but it, it, it has no true mathematical relationship. If instead you, you consider the earnings yield, just flip the P.E. Uh, ratio uh, and use the reciprocal, a 15 times P.E. is a 6.6, called 6.7 earnings yield. CPI over core CPI over the last 60 years ran at 3.7%. So when people say, well, the normal ratio, the normal valuation is 15 PI, I have to complete, constantly switch, switch back to PE because that's what everybody has in their head. But that was during a period of time where on average inflation was 3.7. So a 6.7 earnings yield minus a 3.7 CPI gives you a 3% real earnings yield. It seems to us that the market over long periods of time has a central tendency to sell for a 3% real earnings yield. So where are we today? Trailing, we're, here we're using trailing um, earnings. So the market is selling for about 20 times 
trailing earnings. That's a 4.9% earnings yield. Core CPI is running at 2.3% year over year. So you end up at about a 2.6 earnings yield. So we're a little rich, but we're not we're not that we're not as rich as as some think. And of course, that's using trailing earnings. Now that we have this huge jump in uh, you know 25% growth in corporate earnings, that trailing PE is going to come down very quickly. The forward earnings is already down to about a historic average. So it seems to us the market is is fairly valued. Uh, especially if inflation stays tame down in the in the two, you know, could even go to two and a half. You know, we've been running twenty over twenty five years in this regime of two percent inflation, not the three point seven percent inflation that we've experienced on average over the last sixty years. Now, Professor, you 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 talk a lot about earnings yields as mm-hmm. as related I, I to. I emphasize it too. Uh, you know, the six uh, the six point seven percent. John quoted is exactly the long-term real return on stocks, um, and I said it's not a coincidence that the earnings yield is the real return on stocks. The two correspond exactly, and in more than over the last sixty years. I mean, uh, you know, to go back to the beginning of the nineteenth century, um, and um, of course, until World War II, average inflation was virtually zero. Over that period, um, you still got six percent, six point seven percent real return. Um, I agree that uh, stock market reacts negatively to inflation. Um, I think there's a number of reasons for it. I think that part of it, the central bank starts hiking rates. It means often that you know you're pressing pressing on resources. You might be near the top of a bull market. We also have tax considerations. Um, as you know, nominal capital gains are taxed, not real capital gains. So therefore, uh, you know, under an inflationary environment, it's actually an increase in capital tax. So there's a lot of reasons I think markets do react um, negatively. But, but the bottom line, um, my bottom line conclusion using different metrics than John, but is also we're slightly above historical um, where – Actually, selling around 17.5 times S&P operating earnings for 2018, um, and uh, you know that's a, just a tad above the long, the long run average. Um, I also emphasize that the long run average could rise because if you really go back years ago, transaction costs were much greater. It was you know you couldn't hold. A, uh, totally indexed portfolio at anywhere near the zero cost you can today. So really, um, stocks are even more liquid than they've ever been, which would tend to raise their price of one or two points. So the bottom line is we're, we're at or slightly above, which means we're going to get a little bit slightly below real returns on stocks, but still hugely better than bonds. Um, where, as you know, the 10-year tips is still, uh, you know, well below 1% on uh, real return. So holding that to maturity, you're going to get less 1%, and inflation goes up. Uh, you might get less than 0% on the standard uh, Treasury bond. So I think bonds, you know, still look terrible. I think um, I think they're being bought as hedge assets. I think... Uh, uh, I think they have a negative beta. They do have negative beta, and, and as a result, they 
they, they serve as sort of insurance policies, and people want short-term insurance policies and portfolio. Those, those are good, but they do drag, we will drag down uh, those returns. What I'm, I'm interested in knowing is um, we, we, we haven't looked internationally. The U.S. is about the most expensive market um, around the world. PEs in Europe look like they're 13, 14. In Asia, they're very cheap. Emerging markets, uh, many of them are cheaper. Uh, China, we know now, is 11. Of course, it has the threat of the tariffs there. So I'm sort of interested in John's view of valuation um, around the world and whether you find that more attractive than uh, U.S. equities today. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with John Abruzese, the CIO of Evercore Wealth Management, to talk about valuations, John, uh, on, on the international side of your, your real earnings yield model. How, how does that look? So internationally, uh, uh, clearly, um, the P-E ratios are lower. Of course, on average over history, they do tend to be lower for, for lots of reasons. And currently, uh, you know, we just don't have the growth internationally that we have in the U.S., haven't for quite a while. Of course, you know, we've been through this period where the U.S. has done twice as well as the international market, going back all the way to the financial crisis. And that's for fundamental reasons. The earnings have been twice as good. Uh, now, last year that flipped and and um, foreign earnings started growing faster than the U.S. But this year uh, we're back to, especially with the tax cuts, you know, we're looking at 25% um, earnings growth in the U.S. And internationally, EFO looks like it's growing, going to grow at about 12% or so, which is which is fine. That's very healthy, but it's just not nearly as strong as the U.S. Obviously, we're going to lap the taxes, and uh, but uh, the underlying, forget about tax cuts, we're, we're, we probably would have grown earnings at 15%. So you're not overweighting anything foreign at this point in a glo- in your global equity portfolio, uh, we are we we are a little overweight because uh, a little over a year ago it did look to us like uh, international was finally going to grow faster. However, I hasten to say that we do not, because our clients are U.S. investors, we do not think the global the global equity benchmark is, is the appropriate benchmark. Meaning, which in which case a neutral position would be only 50% U.S. We think for U.S. investors, a neutral position is 75% U.S., 25% international. Well, how's your feeling about emerging markets relative to EFA, uh, non-U.S. developed? Yeah, so we're we're a little we're we do have a higher weight to emer- within international. So so we did go from a 25% weight in international to 30. So for us, that's in effect kind of overweight. Other people would see it as underweight. Uh, and within international, uh, we do emphasize emerging more. About half is emerging versus developed because um, we do see higher growth there and better valuations relative to growth. But that's being called into question. Obviously, in the last two weeks, emerging markets have, have been hit pretty hard over over the trade fears. seems like that's been the biggest market reaction to the potential for a trade war. It's interesting in the U.S. that it's the market just still doesn't want to believe we're going to get into a big trade war. Even if you look at, I was recently looking at a, uh, a set of, very, of companies that would be highly affected, companies with an average of 65% foreign earnings, and uh, they've barely underperformed. 
Uh, so the yeah. market the market uh, doesn't believe it, but I, it seems to me the probabilities are increasing every day. I mean, I think there's a good chance. I think that they Trump, are. I think they are too. Yeah. And the market may be uh, may be underestimating it at this point. I al- I also did say in the last few weeks that if there is a resolution and you know China China and the U.S. China and the U.S. come to some agreement with the Trump administration. I think we could see a good 10% pop in um, equity prices, not only here but around the world. Right. Uh, I, I do think they they're they're somewhat under uh, un, under pressure, um, but uh, uh, doesn't look at least at this point we're going to get that uh, resolution uh, very soon. Although certainly we uh, we all hope so. Yeah, I think the the market's not handicapping the probability of a trade war as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's when you if you look at exports as a percent of GDP, it's we're so far less than everybody else. We're at like eight percent, and the next lowest is Japan at fifteen, and they go up to twenty twenty five, and Germany at forty percent. So, so we would be the least affected. Um, by a by a trade war by those numbers, you know that's first order. Obviously, there's second and third order effects, uh, and then specifically with China, I think there's just two completely different perspectives. We have the big trade deficit with China, which Trump is focused on, and that hurts our GDP, and it's not great for uh, for labor in the U.S. as the jobs have moved. But uh, interesting statistic: if you add up, in in effect. The Chinese buy just as many goods and services from U.S. companies as U.S. consumers buy Chinese goods. It's just that a lot of the goods and services that um, that the American companies are selling to the Chinese are made in China. So if you add up all the sales of all the U.S. subsidiaries in China, if you add up all those sales plus our exports to China, we're equal. But we should also not forget that when it seems like Trump totally ignores this, that when uh, China sells us 500 billion and we sell them 100 billion, they put that 400 billion in U.S. securities, some treasury, some equities, some corporate bonds. Uh, you eliminate the trade, so to speak, deficit, and that 400 billion uh, in yearly investment in the U.S. disappears. Uh, it's an accounting identity that uh, is often ignored, which could put pressure on interest rates, especially with uh, the U.S. deficit, uh, you know, approaching a trillion dollars uh, a year. So uh seems like the Trump administration totally ignores uh, that half of the equation. Yeah, I think I think the Trump administration sees it per- purely as the, you know, nationalistic, the economy and jobs, and the market looks at it and says, hey, we're benefiting from selling, we're getting the profits from Apple and Nike and selling goods into China, and it, this looks like a perfectly fine deal to us. So there's there's that split in perspectives, and they just clash. Professor, we're going to have to take a quick break here. Uh, the second half of the program, we're going to continue our conversation with John Aprizese, the part, CIO partner at Evercore Wealth Management. The second half of the program, we're going to have Jillian Brigden of MI2 uh, Intelligence Partners, Research Partners. We'll be back after a short break. 
Welcome back to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by Orangeville. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. In the studio with me is John Akizese, Chief, Invest- Chief Investment Officer of Evercore Wealth Management. Joining us on the phone for this half hour is Julian Brigden of Macro Intelligence Two Partners, founded in 2011. They're an independent research firm that works on global macroeconomics policy developments. They do a lot of commentary. Uh, Julian, welcome to our program today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Um, so I've been following some of your work online and been recently getting uh, sort of access to some of your research. A lot of interesting thoughts. Uh, I know you were just on Real Vision TV with our old pal talking about a lot of your macro views. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got started in macro research, and then we'll go into uh, a little bit about your firm, and, ha- and then we'll go into some of your, your, your global thoughts here on, on what's happened in the markets. Perfect. Thank you. Um, well, we started off, as you said, um, a few years ago, and uh, but that belies the fact that I've been in the markets now for 30-plus years, unfortunately. Um, and um, sort of through that career, did traded various different things and sold various different products, um, all within the sort of uh, bond FX uh, commodity space. And then basically started to write commentaries of my own um, to my hedge fund and real money accounts um, and basically we were approached by some of our uh, some of my clients and they said your comments really good we can't pay you enough to uh, for them why don't you go and set up your own research business and that's kind of what we did and since then we've uh, you know gradually built it out and uh, organically kind of grown it and uh, you know got done it I guess by being more right than wrong which is always important yeah, I like your address location. It's in Vail, Colorado. Not a bad place to, to set up shop. No, it doesn't suck. It, it's, <laughs> uh, it's quite pleasant. <laughs> I have to do set up a due diligence meeting to go to go look at your your, your setup there. Um, but so maybe talk a little bit about your your macro views. How how are you looking at the world from a very high level? All the different forces. A lot of different things happening in macro politics here today. Macroeconomics and politics. Uh, what what's uh, what's your worldview here? So, so when we look at the macro, the macro seems pretty clear to us in that we have um, a certainly a very, very solid recovery here in the United States, very late cycle. We're certainly, uh, through a lot of our own sort of proprietary models, starting to see um, quite rapid jumps and the risks of quite rapid uh, accelerations in U.S. inflation. Um, we're also not as bearish as some of some commentators are on the on the say the European story or on the Chinese story. So in Europe, um, we were very bullish into the end of last year. Actually, put on or recommended to put on some shorts in European equities um, as hedges for some of our bond views elsewhere because we just thought growth was peaking out. But I think the assumption, Jeremy, has been since the global financial crisis to assume that as soon as you see any loss of momentum in growth to say oh my goodness the next thing is recession and that's not what we see what we see is a plateauing of growth in Europe at around 2% which is probably double uh, trend growth so in other words we're still closing the output gap when we look at the global trade picture in say China yes once again growth momentum has peaked but it isn't collapsing Um, in fact what we see there as well is a kind of a plateauing out so we have Asia, Europe ticking along, not quite as robustly as they were at the end of the year, but the United States still powering on, mostly because we've just dumped a massive fiscal stimulus on it, both in terms of the tax cut, but most particularly in terms of the budget. And um, it's late cycle and inflation. Now, that's quite clear to us. The difficulty is, how do you trade this? And I say that because 
central bank policy has created a market the like of which I mean, even with 30 years experience, and I've got a couple of colleagues with more experience than me in the markets, we've never seen price divergences between, let's say, risk assets, equities, credit, priced as sort of nailed to the ceiling, as we like to euphemistically refer to it, and bond yields and rates as low as they are or nailed to the floor. And how do we normalize this process is going to be very, very difficult from a uh, from a trading perspective, and and so you know you think about just that worldview, and you think rates eventually catch up with equity, start rates start pressuring higher, or you know is it, is it then now that you're becoming more worried about equities and you're trying to figure out when the when the equities hit their their sort of peak? So up until very recently, I mean, we advocated to our clients to put shorts on in treasuries. I mean, actually back in 2016, and then again most recently at. 230 and 10 years, and then 240 and then 270. Um, we actually don't at this point advocate a position in treasuries. We think the market is treading water here where we kind of figure out what's next. Um, we, but when we were running those positions, we were very worried that high yields would pressurize risk assets, in other words, equities. And the way that we've been trying to play that is advocate the short in the bond market, but at the same time run some sort of offsetting hedge in either a short equity play. As I said, we tried, we tried early, uh, Europe um, earlier in the year, um, and alternatively long in the dollar. And that's where at the moment we're most focused, those long positions in the dollar. So Julian, this is John. Uh, so do you see evidence of inflation increasing? Yes. So our models typically look six months out, and it looks to us that we're going to take headline PCE, which is, what, 2.3 at the moment, and we're going to be pushing that at least to three and possibly higher. Um, And our core models are suggesting you could get core CPI also heading towards three. I think we've almost got a perfect storm in terms of inflation we've had not only have we got a cyclical upturn in oil which has run further than we thought we thought we'd top out around 65 um now that would drop out all other things being equal probably in around sort of the october november data but we now have tariff induced costs which are not inconsiderable we have a perfect storm in the transportation sector which is one in every ten dollars spent in the u.s economy and costs there for trucking costs are rising in the very high teens so that alone could add one and one plus percent to cpi and we do have i mean not massive wage pressure but we do have rising wage pressure and more importantly we have, if you look at, go and look at the ISM surveys and the PMIs, it's pretty obvious that courtesy of this fiscal stimulus, we have a situation where uh, demand is actually outstripping supply in a lot of sectors. And that very simply, I mean, there was a market comment from their market, PM, from the market US PMIs, where they said, we simply cannot meet production demands. And so in a situation where demand is outstripping supply, and you've got cost pressures, firms are going to pass those increases along. Uh, you have falling commodities outside of oil, right? It's a, lot of, a lot of the metals and so forth have been have been coming down. So that yep. takes some pressure off. 
takes a little bit of pressure off, but it's not. Bear in mind, I mean, some of those are the base metals, but if you look at some of the components, right? So iron's been falling, but steel costs are rising because we put a tariff on them. So, you know, it's six to one half does the other. I mean, as I said, we think we're on the cusp, certainly by September, October, where we'll have seen a significant jump in inflation. And I think that's going to create, I think essentially the Fed, to use a British phrase, have snookered themselves. You know, on the infl- I think one area of disinflation that people, uh, I find they don't focus on is, strikes us that the uh, that the tax cut, the corporate tax cut, is disinflationary. I mean, if you and all your competitors suddenly get a big drop in costs across the board and you're in a, in a competitive industry, everybody's arguing about, well, what are they going to do with the money, buy back shares, buy, invest more uh, dividends? It seems to me one of the first things you do is cut prices or at least not increase prices. Do you see that as a disinflationary force? No, I, I think – We've got to get over this. We've been in a disinflationary force since the agricultural revolution in the 1600s in the UK. Basically, prices have fallen continuously for 400 years. But we, within those, that 400-year period, we have these periods where you tend to have quite sharp run-ups in inflation. And there was a, there was a great Bank of England paper that they did on this. And... I think we're exactly in that type of situation. The analogous period to me is, and this is one we've been using modeling and playing around with for the last two years, or since Trump got elected, are the mid-60s, where you had an economy with very low, very stable inflation from sort of 1959 to 65. Halcyon, no one was running back around back then screaming deflation. It was a halcyon period of post-war economics. We had falling unemployment. It was around 4.5%. And then you thumped it with a massive, unnecessary fiscal stimulus and corporate tax cut. And you drove inflation from... 1.8%, uh, sorry, 1.6% to 3.8% in 10 months. I think we're going to have driven, by the time this stimulus runs off sometimes next year, where we've already taken PCE from 1.4, we're now at 2.3, and our models are showing at least 3, and they haven't even topped yet. We're talking with Julian Brigden of Macro Intelligence to Partners, uh, John Apresese, Chief Investment Officer of Evercore Wealth Management. Uh, so, so, Julian, one of the things you talk about in some of your notes is, you know, you, you see these rising inflation pressures, but it's and it's hard to get too bearish because liquidity conditions are, are just still so ample in a way. Is that is that an accurate reflection? And, and what do you think is the – we are seeing the Fed reduce some of the liquidity. Uh, what's what's the trigger that you think when – that we have to be cognizant about, about when that all rolls over? Well, look, I, mean, I think when you, when you look at – so what we're saying is we, we see a macro picture which requires some sort of tightening of not just rates but, say, broad financial conditions, all right? And when you look at a metric of broad financial conditions, those are unbelievably easy. I mean, if you take something like the Chicago Fed's metric of um, financial conditions in the United States, it's the first time in modern history – that as the Fed has tightened, financial conditions have eased, right? So 
when you look at the metrics that make up a financial conditions index, they're typically some sort of dollar element, a short-term interest rate element, or as let's say Fed funds, a bond element, a credit element, and an equity element. And basically, equities and credit have utterly ignored the Fed's tightening. Well, I think there's various reasons for that. But the point is, is at some point, given what's going on from a macro perspective, that we have an overheating, somewhat inflationary economy, those financial conditions have to tighten. So something has to give. Does the bond market give? Does it just say one day, well, look, the Fed isn't going to tighten, right, I'm out of here, and yields shoot up like they were earlier in the year, and we push, you know, 10-year yields to three and a half or whatever the number is, possibly. Um, does the dollar go? And that, that, you know, end up sucking bunches of liquidity out of overseas, and we end up with a sort of, 1997, 1998, rolling emerging market crisis as we suck liquidity back into the United States and then eventually it comes back and hits the US economy, possibly. Does the Fed get religion and suddenly go, oh, we're way behind the curve, here's 50 basis points, which typically ends every cycle. I'm not sure, but what I do know, and we're watching those metrics for our clients, but what I do know is that financial conditions are so ridiculously low, given the macro backdrop, that this is unsustainable. You sort of talked about one of your positions being this is uh, long dollars. Uh, is there uh, maybe maybe sort of expand beyond you know this sort of tightening of financial conditions potentially as part of that? But what what are the sort of key elements that you think that would fuel a, fuel a dollar move higher? Well, I think the first thing is to understand, and this may strike listeners as utterly bizarre in a world where the Fed's just blown out the balance sheet $3 trillion, is there's actually a structural shortage of dollars in the rest of the world. And that's come about since uh, the U.S. started to produce shale oil, because that was our biggest import component. And as the reserve currency or as the provider of the reserve currency, we've really only got one obligation to maintain that role uh, as the reserve provider, and that is to supply the world with sufficient dollars to enable it to grow. So if India is growing at 4% per annum, she needs basically 4% more dollars every single year to fuel that growth so she can buy her copper and her oil, et cetera, et cetera. And she, get those, she gets those sustainably by, from the U.S. current account deficit. Okay, but the U.S. current account deficit has shrunk very radically relative to global GDP since shale came about. So that gap has been filled by uh, portfolio outflows, outflows via the capital account. And in a world where we can click on a button, Jeremy, and, and sell our EEM or our EMB or, you know, overseas shares in Europe or whatever, that money definitionally is unstable, that balanced equilibrium where you've got a low current account deficit, too low, but the balance is being provided by the capital account, that money is definitionally hot money and it can be removed very, very quickly. So you have this structural imbalance and so anything that comes along that forces or causes US investors to liquidate their overseas assets, our fear is could cause a very, very sharp rally in the dollar. It's going to be exacerbated because a lot of those flows correlate very closely to the Fed's balance sheet. So as the Fed starts to run down that balance sheet, some of those flows will naturally start to curtail. We're in a period of U.S. equity outperformance. So you're getting one of these periods uh, that we've had, you know, once in a while through history where the U.S. 
um, where you get divergence and the US equity market outperforms, but that's sucking more liquidity from the rest of the world. And that's what happened, as I just described, in that Asian crisis in 97, 98. So the, there is a structural imbalance with the dollar, and it's very, the balance that is created is very unstable. And so anything, as I said, that causes US investors to want to sell their overseas assets could cause a really dangerous and really destructive dollar rally. Is there any currencies in particular? Uh, is it general EM where you think that's the most unstable? Or is I, think, it... I think EM is the most pronounced because they're the ones that have generally funded themselves in dollars. Um, and also they're the ones who are most naturally exposed to commodities, which are priced in dollars and so generally will weaken in a dollar environment. Um, you know, Europe and Japan are less vulnerable. They tend to fund themselves. And so, you know, and and they've got their own currency, so that's less of an issue. No, so it's more, don't get me wrong, I think the euro would go as well if we start to see a very aggressive dollar rally, so you see euro dollar lower. But I, but generally, no, it's an emerging market issue. So, John, you you were talking a little bit earlier uh, on sort of international and, and sort of positioning there. Um, any any thoughts on, on what you're hearing here from Julian? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's very interesting, and there are the emerging markets. There's, there are lots of risks in emerging markets, and you know the fact that we just we're, we are predominantly domestic, so that's um, that gives me some comfort. But it is it is concerning that the emerging markets have there, there's clearly some risks out there um, with the heating up trade war. Uh, and increasing interest rates, um, and yeah, and we will go through this experiment that we've never seen before, where uh, the central banks start taking, start bringing their balance sheets back down. So it's the first time for all of us, and um, accidents are bound to happen. So, so, Julian, when you think about what are the other sort of major themes, you got the rising inflation, you got a strong dollar. Uh, is there particular elements within e- emerging markets that you're, you're particularly focused on or any other major themes that, that you're talking about in, in, in your research? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's all it's all interconnected. I mean, I think that's one of the, the key things that we've uh, been concerned about. And it's, it's the trading side of it that is you know, somewhat difficult because it's, uh, you know, how does this all uh, interact? Um, But one of the things that we've been looking at recently is if you look at the beneficiaries of this global liquidity that have been added into the system, um, one of them has definitely been um, some of the, you know, emerging markets were a beneficiary uh, up until recently, but another one has been some of the really high-flying U.S. stocks and um, one of the things that we've been quite intrigued about um, is the way that some of these stocks are now starting to resemble what we would refer to as a classic bubble. And it's got nothing to do with fundamentals. So, you know, if I mention the name of, you know, let's throw out there Netflix. I know it's a great company, you know, the great fundamentals theoretically. Um, but if you look at the price pattern of the chart, it resembles every single classic bubble we've had since the Dow in 1929 to the Nikkei in 1980 to most closely actually something like Cisco in 2000 where essentially this effusive liquidity has just pumped up the value of these stocks and you've moved beyond pricing fundamentals. What you're essentially trading now is momentum and so the recent dip that we've seen in Netflix post the 
uh, earnings numbers, uh, where they fell slightly for of uh, subscribers, uh, is a danger sign to me because, you know, if you think about a classic momentum trade, um, if you've ever seen a jet fighter in a movie go vertical, as they say, so that they just turn on the afterburners and they go straight up. And you look at this and you say, wow, this thing is going to go to the moon. But the reality is at some point that literally the jets cannot suck in enough air. And think of that as a stock. You can't suck in enough marginal buyers. And at that point, the, the flight of plane doesn't just level off and fly off to the side. It drops. And that's precisely what a momentum game is all about. And that's, I think, the risk to some of these U.S. bubble stocks. So that's definitely something we're watching as this liquidity is withdrawn, because the biggest beneficiaries, the things that have gone up the most, emerging markets was one, are potentially those at greatest risk. You know, I, I, do you see that pattern in the Netflix? To me, it's um, you know somebody came up with Fang. I think they put it in there just because they needed an end. So Netflix <laughs> doesn't have the market cap of you know. Then there's the big five, right? Apple, Amazon. It's really Microsoft, not Net, not Netflix, Google, and Facebook. You know, they're fifteen percent of the S and P five hundred. It's it, it'd be more concerning if if uh, if the pattern was in those stocks. Julian, I am only down to my final thirty seconds <laughs> here, so I'm not going to be able to to let you go into that uh, in, in a lot. But it's been a great conversation, uh, Julian. Where can people find more work from you uh, if they if they like what they heard? Want to get get more of your research? Absolutely. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, and uh, at MI2. And then um, we have a retail product that we put out with the Real Vision guys, which is Macro Insiders. Uh, you can find that on the Real Vision website. And also, if you're an institutional in, uh, investor, then come and uh, contact us at MI2 Partners. So, John, I presume of Evercore Wealth Management. Thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Julian Brigley, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Uh, you can also listen to our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 